I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Well, it's been a crazy couple of weeks, and I thought I was going to get y'all a new episode of the podcast last week, um, but that didn't happen. And then I was out in Los Angeles for a long weekend, getting back really late last night, and so getting a new podcast recorded and edited and online for y'all this week didn't happen either. But good news is that we are doing a throwback podcast for this week, and I have with us Carlos Goffey, and this is a podcast recorded several years ago. Uh, Carlos is an incredible coach. He coached John McEnroe. He coached Mary Carrillo. He's got an incredible history in the sport. And I'm really excited to bring him back to you guys. For those who've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast for a while, you may remember hearing my interview with Carlos. And if so, I hope this is an enjoyable refresher for you. For those of you new to the podcast or relatively new to the podcast, this will be your first time listening, but this conversation with Carlos was recorded back in 2013, so it's it's a few years old, but the lessons that Carlos imparts are still very, very uh, applicable, very useful today, and so I hope you will enjoy hearing from this incredible, incredible coach, and it's really funny to go back and listen to this for me because we actually recorded the podcast while I was driving back from Mobile, Alabama with my son in the car, so it was one of those uh, crazy tournament weekends, and Carlos was very, very accommodating as I navigated my way back to Atlanta and tried to be a good interviewer all at the same time. Please sit back, relax, enjoy the podcast, and I really and truly hope to have a new episode up and online for y'all next week. But in the meantime, here's Carlos Goffey. Good afternoon and welcome to the Parenting Aces radio show on Blog Talk Radio's UR Tennis Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and I'm actually coming live at you from the Marriott in Mobile, Alabama, where we are just heading home after a long, hot, humid weekend of tennis uh, with my son. So it is going to be kind of a crazy show this this morning uh, as I drive and broadcast and uh, hopefully stay on my cell service <laughs> as we're driving from Mobile. But um, please know we have an awesome show for you today. My guest is Carlos Goffi, who is a former professional player from Brazil, a former coach of John McEnroe, Mary Carrillo, and others, and the author of Tournament Tough. And Carlos, are you on the air with us? I sure am. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Lisa. Well, thank you so much. Okay, y'all are getting ready to hear the ding of the elevator as we head down, and um, the elevator at the Mobile Marriott talks to you as you ride in it, so if you hear a strange voice, that's what it is. Um, so, Carlos, um, while I'm riding down the elevator, will you please give our listeners um, 
a, a history of your life in tennis, and I mean, it's so extensive. I I was reading some biographical info on you, and and I'm just blown away at the extent of your involvement in the tennis world. But um, if you want to start with with your years growing up in Brazil, and and take us from there. Well, that would be a pleasure. Uh, uh, first of all, Lisa, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to be on your show. Uh, you are truly a tennis parent, I guess, um, uh, taking on this uh, commendable uh, uh, lead to uh, have this blog show on junior tennis. Uh, I um, Back on when I wrote the uh, book Tournament Tough in the 80s, I wish uh, there was such a thing as a, uh, a blog talk uh, tennis to other parents that are going through what you're going through. Um, it uh, Normally, it's, uh, it, uh, it, it, it's new to a lot of the parents. Uh, right. And, um, and, 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 and normally, the majority of the parents that are trying to do the very best for their kids, of course, as we all do as parents, uh, you know, haven't had any manual to read about uh, how to uh, how to be a tennis parent and what goes on with uh, junior tennis and, and so forth and so on. So it was interesting that um, you t- have taken this um, this lead uh, to have this uh, show. Uh, I think is excellent, and I uh, congratulate you for it. I am not Thank you really. So much. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I'm not really up on today's social media. Um, I am 60 years old, so I'm still one of those dinosaurs that uh, keeps still fighting, uh, tweeting, and, um, and Facebook, and I apologize for that, but uh, uh, it's one of those things uh, that I still have not um, perfected myself. But uh, I'm glad to be here with you in this um, social media network that uh, and hopefully reach a lot of uh, parents that are out there doing the same thing that, believe me, uh, has been done for 100 years, you know. And I remember myself, as you were saying, you know, take me back to uh, to Brazil. Well, uh, I was five years old, uh, and my father was the uh, president of the uh, Sao Paulo Tennis Club. And as the son of the president of the tennis club, uh, I had no choice but to start uh, taking lessons from the pro at the club. And, and, and of course, uh, five years later, of taking lessons and just playing within the club, you know, I started to play my first uh, tennis tournament uh, when I was 10. And, of course, from that point on, uh, I caught the bug and, uh, and, and played tennis every day of my life almost since uh, I was 10 years old and junior tennis throughout Latin America. Uh, and then when I was uh, about uh, 17 years old, I uh, came to uh, play the Orange Bowl uh, from, uh, in December. Uh, and uh, that was, at that point, the World Championships for junior tennis. There was no uh, internet, as you know. We're talking back in 1969 or 70, somewhere in there. Uh, uh-huh. And um, the Orange Bowl was known as the World Championships of Tennis. So um, 64 countries sent their two best junior players for a 128 draw. And you had a draw of the Orange Bowl at that time that was composed of uh, all of these countries, all of these players, and whoever actually won the Orange Bowl that year was the number one junior player in the world because there was no rankings, there were no computers. So imagine if you had a cold or if you were not feeling too good on your stomach that particular week before Christmas, you know, and you could could very well be the number one player in the world in juniors, but if you lost... uh, 
you didn't win that orange bowl, you were not going to be ranked um, in the world. Right. So, so a little history here for the uh, tennis parents that are out there um, uh, dealing with all of these new ranking formats and computer points and all of that stuff. When I started out, obviously, there was nothing of that. In fact, I'll take you to, uh, to the next step, a uh, little history. Uh, back when, so after I played uh, the Orange Bowl, I, I, I was sh- shocked because, again, there was no uh, uh, education, no knowledge in those days about American uh, student-athletes of scholarships. Uh, I, I recall that there were only three Brazilians at that point that had actually been, uh, they were studying in the uh, in the United States as a student-athlete. So it was something that was totally new for us uh, as foreigners uh, back in those days. We had no knowledge, no, no, no Internet to do any research or... or, or or to educate yourself. So during the Orange Bowl, um, I was um, uh, shocked uh, to see all of these coaches from the United, from the American colleges out there recruiting these foreign players. And yeah. uh, and I was actually offered uh, something like a ridiculous number of, uh, I think, 18, 20 scholarships to stay in the United States and play college tennis. So that was a major decision for a boy from Brazil at 17, not knowing what to do, uh, not speaking English, uh, calling my parents in Sao Paulo and say, you know, uh, uh, they are offering me the scholarship. I, maybe I like to stay here. And uh, so it was a very dramatic and uh, experience in those days, I recall, as uh, being here. But I ended up choosing to uh, to go to college in in uh, Texas. As a matter of fact, uh, at that time, it was called University of Corpus Christi. Even though I had um, scholarships offers for other more major universities, what led me to Corpus Christi was that the two players that were number one and number two there, they were the uh, Davis Cup players for Venezuela, and I had actually played against them during the South American Championships years before they were here. So knowing that I knew somebody or these two players, uh, that was really based. Uh, I based my decision on how to where to go to college, just because two of my old buddies were there, without having an idea where Corpus Christi was, an idea of the size of the university, the academic uh, uh, level of the university. Nothing mattered at that point. It was just like to play tennis at a university in the United States, and these two guys uh, were the only two guys that that I knew and and, uh, and and I went there. Amazingly enough, uh, University of Corpus Christi was a small little college um, that um, uh, was a private Baptist school of 1,800 students only, kind of like a, almost a, a high school, really. Uh, wow. Did not have, yeah, did not have uh, tennis courts on campus. Campus was beautiful, right all off, all off um, uh, Ocean Boulevard out there in Corpus Christi, it's right by the ocean. The uh, campus, really nice, small campus. But here's a, here I am, 17 years old, just uh, arriving in Corpus Christi, Texas, and going to this college, and had no idea what what was. And and uh, the the program was actually put together by the coach. Uh, Mr. Bob Mapes, uh, and uh, Coach Mapes was the uh, the uh, tennis director of the uh, public uh, um, public park uh, in downtown Corpus Christi. 
H-E-B Tennis Center. You probably heard of uh, H-E-B Tennis Center. It's a major tennis center uh, in terms of national uh, sure. tennis centers as well. And many sure. tournaments are played there at H-E-B Tennis Center. Well, the coach Mapes was the coach there. And uh, he was the pro there at H.B. Tennis Center, and he actually had six daughters. So uh, he decided to put together a, a men's tennis team for the University of Corpus Christi so that he would have also these six boys that would be like his six sons, actually, okay? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was incredible. It was incredible. Here it is, this elderly man for us. I mean, those days when I was 17, 18, Coach Mapes must have been older than I am now. Uh, I'm 60. Wow. And um, and he was basically a family, you know, uh, of uh, his wife Nancy and her uh, and their six daughters. And here we are, you know, their their sons, the the six players of the tennis team. And um, and for you to have an idea how incredible that experience was for me, uh, we were number during the three years that I was there, we were number three, number five, and number seven in the nation in Division One for a little school that did not have any other athletics or not even their own tennis courts. Imagine. That's amazing. That's, and yeah, so and, who and, were you all and, playing? And, Which other schools did you play in your conference? We, we, there was no conference. We played against everybody in the, in the country. There were the top Division One schools uh, oh. back in those days. For back in those days, for instance, uh, you may not know this, but in the '60s, as we prob- as you probably know, California schools dominated tennis. The Southern Cal's and and the Stanford's and the UCLA's of the world in the '60s. Well, in the '70s, it shifted to Texas. The number one team in the country then was Trinity in San Antonio. And uh, and Trinity in San Antonio today is a Division three school, I believe. Uh, Corpus Christi, uh, we were number three in the nation in Division one, and I believe now the tennis the, the, the tennis team now is is called the Texas A and M or Texas A and I at Corpus Christi, which has nothing to do really with 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 what we were in those days. And um, okay. University of Houston was like number with their top ten. SMU was to the top ten. Rice University was a top ten. So we had basically in the early seventies when I was playing my college tennis, we had uh, the majority of the schools in the top ten in Division One were actually Texas schools. That's amazing. So y'all really didn't yeah. even have to travel that far to get some incredible competition. That's for sure. Well, although in the you know we did have a similar uh, uh, schedule as uh, the col- as 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 the college uh, uh, colleges have today, spring tennis. You know, we would start playing our duels early in June, early in January, and then of course we would finish with the NCAA in uh, in May. And uh, fall was very unstructured. Fall tennis in those days in college tennis was very unstructured, and uh, was really mm-hmm. up to us to basically. Uh, take care of ourselves. So a lot has changed uh, in college tennis since then. Um, As you probably know, my son now is the coach of the University of South Carolina, and uh, and and it's amazing. Uh, I'm keeping up right now with all of the NCAA rules, you know, through my son because he has to, uh, of course, be on top of those rules uh, uh, to do the job that he has. But um, uh, but uh, and and, and brag on wait brag on your son a minute because he just won coach of the year. You know, uh, 
it, 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 I was going to leave that for a little bit later because uh, <laughs> it is a, a matter of tremendous pride. In fact, even you know, what day after day, Father's Day here, here we are. You know, it's a tremendous. Uh, yes. it, it's a matter of tremendous pride to have Josh um, has been chosen as uh, uh, Coach of the Year of the SEC, which is obviously one of the top. Uh, 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 conferences in this country right now, and uh, such a young age uh, to be voted by his peers as the uh, coach of the year. He was also uh, elected the regional coach of uh, of the year as well. On top of that, so uh, um, it, it really has been a, 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 a tremendous pride to see him follow my footsteps and 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 and, and carrying the torch with uh, um, uh, with uh, such a tremendous grace and and capability, really. But uh, so I, I am I am kind of a, always careful about talking about Josh's accomplishments because you know I, I sometimes people may think that uh, I'm proud of him just for what his accomplishments in tennis, but uh, that's far from the truth. Uh, I'm most proud of him for his accomplishments as an indiv- individual, the the person that he is, and uh, he turned out as uh, as an adult going through junior tennis, pretty much like your son is, and possibly all of the listeners' uh, uh, kids as well. Uh, my situation with Josh was slightly different than possibly yours and the and our listeners. Uh, okay. And I will share some. And I will share with you a little bit about that. You know, uh, I uh, I published this book, Tournament Tough, with McEnroe in 1984 when McEnroe was. The, on the top of the game, uh, it, those those of you that know about the history of the game, in '84, John John was not only the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, but uh, <laughs> un, yeah, but differently, but differently than our top guys today. And and I have tremendous respect for all of the top four players of today of our days today. I mean. No question about it. They are phenomenal tennis players, and they represent our game with uh, uh, fantastically. They are great representatives of our game, our top four. However, with all the respects, uh, they are great tennis players. Mac in '84 not only was a great tennis player, but he was a tremendous celebrity. On top of it all, you know that actually. Yeah. Uh, uh, that actually had at that point transcended the game of tennis, his celebrity status. So uh, when uh, when Mac and I decided to put it put together in writing, there were no tennis books directed to junior tennis at all that that had been written up until that point. So uh, there were a lot of questions. Obviously, how did a John McEnroe become so good? You know, because uh, he really was an unorthodox type of a junior player, and uh, and went through the ranks uh, in a very unorthodox manner, and uh, and became number one in the world. Uh, and people wanted to know how is mm-hmm. this possible? You know, of uh, and such a celebrity. And we put together that book um, uh, to actually share our views about junior tennis development. And uh, it was quite interesting because the book, uh, if you've read, uh, Lisa, um, the, um, uh, talks very little about technique. And the uh, focus, we purposely, was to talk about strategy and tactics and the whole mental aspect of the competitive tennis rather than focus on technique, which most of the, the books up to that point would only deal with technique. So, mm-hmm. um, But coming back to uh, Josh's in junior tennis, I was just... 
I was just saying that um, when the book uh, was published, uh, Josh was very young at that point. Josh is from 1979, so uh, he was only four or five years old when the book was published, and it was a big deal in those days because not because of Carlos Goffey by far, but certainly with the with the name McEnroe on the book, it became you know, it was sold in every country in this in the world. It was translated into I you know six seven languages, and and it was a pretty big deal in those days, and. Uh, and I immediately started a tennis camp following the book because there was a lot of interest in those days for parents of junior players to have access to my coaching at that point. And I, at that point, uh, I started this uh, summer camp, uh, which uh, uh, was a very successful and a large summer camp in those days in the mid-'80s. Following the, and you were down uh, in Florida at that point already, right? At that point, yes. Yes, at that point we 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 had the camp um, uh, for four years here at um, Orange Lake Country Club in Orlando. Then we went down to Bonaventure Resort and Spa in Fort Lauderdale, and moved around a little bit the camp, you know, because the camp kept growing and uh, and we needed uh, different facilities for the camp. But um, but uh, the 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 funny thing about it is this, and here I am, um, you know, um, just enjoying uh, success uh, for the release of the book, uh, and um, and having a son that is uh, five years old, six years old, and and running these camps for the top juniors that were coming in from all over the country, different parts of the world, ranked junior players, and Josh is growing up with these kids during the summer, and uh, these kids. Uh, by the time Josh is eight, nine years old, uh, the kids would be and begin to ask Josh, Josh, how come you're not playing tennis? How come you're not playing tennis? Well, see, I had use uh, I had to use uh, what we call reverse psychology with my son, and yeah. uh, because because I am Brazilian and uh, you know, and his mom is American, uh, I I used to bring Josh to Brazil every year to visit, uh, of course, my parents and his relatives there. And I used to take him to these big soccer games, big soccer stadiums, and uh, in Brazil, which is is pandemonium. You know, when there's a, they score a goal there in Brazil, it, it just like fireworks everywhere inside of the stadium, of inside of the soccer stadium. It's really a huge spectacle. Uh, soccer matches in Brazil. So I used to take him to these soccer games, and when we used to get back to the United States here, he would be playing in these soccer little leagues that every kid in America plays. You know, Tuesday and Thursdays practice, Saturday, you know, they suit up and they play against another team. And I did that with Josh uh, uh, when he was six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, and he was playing soccer. And... uh, so when we would go to the camp, and the camp in those days were like two months long, and the kids would ask him, you know, Josh, how come you're not playing uh, uh, tennis yet? Uh, he says, well, I'm a soccer player. I'm a soccer player. Because I used to tell him, I said, Josh, you don't want to play tennis. Come on, look at how wonderful this game of soccer is. I mean, beautiful field. Imagine one day you're playing for the Brazilian national team wearing that nice yellow jerseys of the Brazilian national team. <laughs> I said, tennis is boring compared to soccer. Please, I mean, continue to play soccer. You have Brazilian blood in your veins. You can be in the national team one of these days. <laughs> Just trying to keep him away from the game because at that point, the last thing I wanted to do, Lisa, to be very very frank with you, is to be able to take my son to 10 and unders and 12 and under tournaments, you know, in South Carolina, yeah. to be frank with you. 
yeah. did not want him to have that kind of pressure, you know, being son of a sort of an author and, and coach that was enjoying a, sort of a success in my coaching career, and I did not want him to feel that pressure while he was on the court, you see. And so it was funny because he used to tell everybody that, yeah, you know, I, I prefer to play tennis. I play, play soccer than tennis. Soccer is, is my sport. Until such a day, and that day was uh, when he was 14 years old. He had just shot up uh, to, uh, to uh, almost a six-footer, and his, foot, his feet just shot up to size 14 when he turned 14. So this kid just wow. went through from a little, a little boy to a man's size at, when uh, he was 14. And I remember this day vividly because I told him that uh, this was uh, the most important day of uh, his life and my life. I went to wake him up at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, like I did every morning, to get him, you know, the kids ready to take him to school. And when I, uh, I touched him and I said, Josh, time to get up. And he kind of says, oh, I'm so tired. And they beat me up last night on the soccer field so bad, man. I'm, my knees are hurting. And he was half asleep and he says, Dad, I'm quitting soccer and I'm starting to play tennis. Oh, my gosh. So, Just like that. Yeah. Just like that, and he was still half asleep. So I kind of wow. held him up by the arm and said, Josh, wake up, wake up. What did you say? <laughs> he says, oh, I just said that I just, I'm getting beaten up in the, on the soccer field. I'm quitting soccer. I'm starting to, to play tennis now. I said, well, I want you to know that this is the most important day of our lives, yours and mine. And he didn't quite understand that, but I made sure he understood it. And I said, I want you to know that you are making the decision this morning to quit playing soccer, and you're making the decision to play tennis. And I've never asked you to play tennis, and I've never even uh, uh, expected you to play tennis. So do we, we want to make sure that we never forget today. So that day, he didn't really understand the magnitude of that day, but that is the point that I'm trying to make to your readers, to every parent that is listening, is that I made absolutely sure that my son owned his game from that moment mm -hmm. forward, that that was his game, his decision, and that he had absolutely nothing to prove to anybody, much less to his parent, that about tennis. In fact, you know... I told him, I said, uh, you know, you've been around tennis since you were born, the, m the minute you were born, you've been around tennis. You've seen all of the stuff that goes on in a tennis match, the individuality of the sport, and, and why I told you that soccer is a, is a beautiful sport for you because you're in a team situation. You know, when the team loses, you know, three zip, you know, you guys, we all end up at Pizza Hut having fun, you know, having pizza and the Coca-Cola with all the parents and all the kids. They just got waxed, you know, and everybody's happy. But in a right. tennis match, you know, a tennis tournament, you lose love and love. It looks like somebody died in the family, you know. So, so it, it's a completely different uh, uh, animal than, uh, than, than a team sport. And, and I want you to own this. It's your game. It's your deal. I didn't ask you to play. You want to play tennis. I'll do everything I can to help you. But you've got to understand that that's, that's, that's your game. That's your, your choice right now. And I take this, um, uh, this, this approach very seriously, Lisa, because until uh, 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 a kid is uh, self-motivated, uh, the kid cannot be a champion. 
And uh, to get to the point of a kid to be self-motivated, that kid needs to own the game as his own thing, that he doesn't need to do that to please anybody other than himself. And until you get that across and that in the DNA of that junior tennis player, you're never going to get a player that will reach uh, his or her potential. Well, let me ask you a question because I I agree with you a thousand percent, and I'm just wondering because Josh started, you know, what pe- many people would consider really late, age, age 14. Did you have to remind him that it was his choice ever? No, I did. You know what? Um, I only had to remind him that it was his choice when he had some bad losses, like we all do. And, uh, and and when he when he had bad losses, and when junior players get so frustrated that you know, end up with a bad loss, you know, uh, you, you just basically want to blame you know anything in the world and everything in the world for your loss. And in those days, I used to remind them, you know, uh, look, you remember that day when I woke you up and you said that you wanted to play tennis? So listen, you know, it's your choice. Get your head back up and let's move on. So. The other uh, thing that I would say to you, Lisa, and to the parents that are listening, is that, quite frankly, uh, a lot of people uh, may, may, may disagree with what I have to say here. But I'm going to tell you, and I will put myself on the line because I believe that thoroughly, is that what you want to do with a child that is, uh, going, that is going to play tennis before he or she reaches physical maturity as well as some kind of an emotional maturity to handle the individualistic aspect of our game. You don't want that kid to be in our game that seriously until physically and emotionally they can handle an individual sport, you see. And in mm-hmm. and, 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 and a, a team sport, like soccer or basketball or volleyball, what have you, it's a much better way to hone your skills as a competitor, as an athlete, as a, as a, as a, as a kid growing up and, 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 and having to deal with the teammates and, and, and all of that. That's a much healthier way to develop an athlete through team sports up until the kid is about 14 or or in some of the instances girls actually mature emotionally and physically earlier than 14. But certainly boys don't because they go through that whole spurt at 14 years old with the Osgoch-Schlatter problems on the knees and all of that kind of stuff. And when you put a kid that is not physically or emotionally capable of handling, you know, a a tennis battle one-on-one, you know, you start getting into all sorts of bad habits, all sorts of bad uh, sort of uh, 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 things that normally you, 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 you shouldn't because you will hold you back. You will scar you. And it has scarred so many people and so many kids because during in that period of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, they had so many bad experiences that have absolutely nothing to do with, uh, with, uh, with, with the experience that they're going to have at 14 and, and up because they're different players. They're playing a different tennis at that point, you see. So I, I am... Sorry, um, let me just ask no. you, uh, so is your, is your approach then that kids should not be playing tournaments before the age of 14 or, um, or not be playing... I mean, should they be training as tennis players before 14 and just not competing? I I just want to make sure I'm understanding clearly. 
And I appreciate that. Yes, I appreciate that. And I'll go on a limb by saying that I actually uh, uh, have been through full circle, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and that I can speak, you know, uh, uh, certain of my experience that I've had as a junior player myself. Uh, when I was back as a junior player back in the early 60s in Brazil, and then later on in the, uh, as I was telling you, in the in the uh, late 80s and early 90s with Josh, with my own son having to do this, right. with my own son as a parent, but now as a coach and the one that has gone through all all of it. My when I went through as a junior. My parents had not gone through, you know, junior tennis. They didn't play junior tennis when they were juniors. My father was a lawyer and, as I said, president of the club. And uh, my mom, you know, uh, uh, was a wonderful mom, but never had played uh, uh, competitive tennis. Both of them were just very social club players that came in and played little doubles once a week, you know, with their friends at the club, and but never even went to a tennis tournament before. So hmm. when I went through junior tennis, and a lot of parents are the same as my own parents, you know, where sure. they, they never played competitive tennis, and then all of a sudden, you know, they've got a little guy or a little girl that they think there's going to be a little Rafa Nadal or another Maria Sharapova, you know, and, and, and it's a totally, you know, illusion at that point, you know, and something that that a lot of parents don't realize the damage that it can, can cause to uh, to uh, to a young uh, kid that is not physically or emotionally prepared to handle the the pressures of an individual game like tennis, uh, because they themselves did not go through. So how could they understand what the kid is going through out there? Right. Because you know, from the outside, you know, I mean, how simple is it this game? I mean, you know, we sit outside on the bleachers and say, how could he miss that shot? I mean, how could he not beat this kid? You know, I mean, it's, it's very right. easy from that. <laughs> You know, when we sit outside, the game, the game is a, is, is nothing. But I mean, getting inside out there and start feeling those butterflies that these kids feel, you know, and start feeling all of the emotions that these kids go through, and they don't know how to deal with that because they're not prepared. They're not, they're not mature enough to prepare, to be prepared to handle all of that, you know, mega number of emotions they go through. It is, you know, peer pressures that they suffer when they're inside that tennis court alone. It is, what is my mom and my dad, you know, going to say after all of this, you know, we travel 500,000 miles and cost so much and, you know, and I just can't put a ball on the court. I mean, it's it's tough, you know, for a kid alone to be handling uh, himself or herself at that age. And uh, in, a, in an environment where you are in a competitive sport, in a, in a, in a team sport, it's completely different. I mean, if you're playing soccer, you've got 10 other kids out there. If you're playing basketball, you've got, you know, four other kids out there on the court that even though you're a little off, the coach says, hey, sit down here, like, calm down, will you, before I put you back on. So, I mean, there is a, uh, is a completely different dynamics. Uh, going yeah, I on, had on actually, I'm sorry, I was going to say I had one dad say to me this weekend, um, instead of spending all this money on lessons and, and hitting balls, I should be spending it on therapy for my kid. Yeah, but you see, <laughs> he, you know, I mean, it was just, it was funny, but sad at the same time because he was watching his son lose to somebody that his son should have been winning the match, but for whatever reason, you know, the kid's head wasn't there that day, and um, I'm sure what was going through the kid's head is exactly what you're saying. You know, what's what's yeah. my dad sitting over there thinking? What am I going to hear when I walk off the court? And you're right, it's terribly sad. 
Yes, well, and 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 moving on. I mean, uh, you just mentioned something that it reminds me that uh, I, I've been I've through my camps, twenty nine years of, of summer camps, uh, Lisa. I've literally have gone through thousands and thousands of kids. You know, competitive junior t- players gone through my camps for twenty nine years. Imagine, and. Uh, and I've had uh, parents and interviews and and, 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 and and what is your best advice, you know, for a tennis parent? What is your best advice for a tennis parent? <laughs> Please tell us what is the advice best. First of all, my number one advice to tennis parent is this. No talking tennis for at least two hours after a match, okay? That's the first advice that I have for parents. No tennis. Match is over. Uh, okay, what would you like to do, kid, my son or my daughter? Uh, I like to be out here in the pool with my buddies, or I like to go out and have a, some lunch. Okay, well, you know what? We get in the car, we talk about what we're going to eat for lunch. We got, we got to talk about if he wants to go to a movie. But there is no tennis talk for two hours until all of the emotions start falling, you know, sort of come down from both sides. Because if you mm-hmm. start talking about tennis, whether you win or lose, you should not talk about tennis after a match. No, it is not just when you lose. Even when you win, you should not talk about the match for at least two hours because um, the emotional uh, uh, um, feelings that you're going through, win or lose after a match, makes you say things that uh, if you have two hours to actually ponder, you probably will not say either way whether after you lost or after you won. So it's uh, it's very, very interesting because uh, even these press conferences for the top athletes that they have to make because it's the the rule of the ATP and WTA, those press conferences sometimes they just they don't go too well, you know, as you, as you probably mm-hmm. seen some of those, even with, with, with professional athletes because it's just right. too soon after the match to be talking about the match, you know, either way. So my, that's my first advice for parents. But... But, but but for you to have an idea, uh, uh, Lisa, you know, and and the listeners as well, it's not that I did not allow Josh to pick up a racket until he was fourteen. You know, I mean, I, I would be hitting. I mean, I was a different case with Josh and I. We're different cases than the majority of uh, amateur parents that have not played tennis with ki- in the dead with their own kids. Because, granted, mm-hmm. I was on a uh, top of the world as a coach at that point, a junior tennis coach at that point, and I did not want my kid to feel that pressure when he was playing at that young age. So the 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 recipe that worked for me, which I believe it can be used even for those that are not coaches or tennis pros, dads, uh, I think you know it can it, it work. It can work for everyone because what does a kid need between up until he or she is fully or or nearly full physical and a little more maturity emotionally is to learn how to compete. Is to, to to be a competitor. It is to become a better athlete. So these cross sports to tennis 
are doing the job without the pressure of that one-on-one, you see, but you're doing the same job, mm-hmm. you know, on a on a soccer field or on a basketball court, on a volleyball court, because you're improving your footwork, you're improving your, your competitiveness, you're improving your, your balance, you're improving, so not only your athleticism, but you're really, your, comp- your competitiveness as well. At the end of the day, those are much more important than just hitting balls, you know, I mean, forehands and backhands right. and serves are the easy part of our game, you know, that can be learned, like, really quickly, how to hit a ball. And I often say, you know, that unfortunately, our game has way too many more hitters than players. And, and, and I think that that's one of the reasons is because, you know, you, we start the kids so early, that technique becomes so, so, you know, important, you know, that yeah. they end up their whole life thinking about technique. And the, the majority of the pros, uh, you know, with, with all the respects for my own, you know, sort of uh, fellow coaches and pros out there, you know, a lot of the coaches, uh, when they are giving private lessons to the kids, I mean, they, they just hone in on the technique only. You know, and let's fix that forehand loop or let's fix that backhand and let's fix that serve. So everything becomes so technically oriented that the kid basically, you know, experiences competing only when he's in a tournament, and and if and 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 so that really is a shock to uh, to the to 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 an emotional uh, kid that is not prepared to handle that. You see. So if a kid has grown up playing a team sport such as soccer, baseball, or volleyball, um, and and doesn't compete in tennis tournaments until age fourteen. You you feel that that competitive spirit that they've gleaned from the team sport translates pretty quickly over to tennis? Immediately. Immediately in a much more healthy way, in a much healthier way than if that child had been out there getting beaten up, I mean, you know, as an individual since he was 8, 9, and 10 on the court and just driving himself crazy, I mean, you know, and uh, about not understanding how to handle any of that, you see. I okay, mean, where were I mean, you this... in my life 10 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me tell you this, Lisa, okay. Imagine, just to prove the point, just to prove the point. So, Josh... We'll use Josh as an example because here okay. again, is my own son. I'm, I'm using my own son as an example. Uh, so we go down to Palm Beach uh, when he's 14 years old after that episode that morning at, at home, and uh, and, uh, and he says, "I'm going to be. I'm going to do the camp. I'm going to do the camp this summer, and I am going to start playing tennis." I said, "Good. You know, the camp's there for you." So he goes out there after a couple of weeks of uh, you know drilling in the camp and playing little little uh, challenge matches in the camp with the other kids that were like 13, 14. Um, uh, one of my uh, staff members on a weekend took the, uh, about a dozen kids to play one of these FTA tournaments down there in Miami. You know, just was mm-hmm. one of those things that in between sessions I used to get one of my staff to take kids to play tournaments, these local tournaments. And I never went, and it was uh, basically uh, Josh's first tournament, and I never went. I didn't. I purposely didn't even didn't even go to his own to his first tournament, so that he would understand that you know what, that's your deal. You know, you you've got a you've got one of our staff guys that is going to go out there with you. Got all the kids here; they're your friends. You know, have a good time. You know, bye bye. So right. he goes out, and he comes back. You know, with a gang. And my pro comes in, and, uh, you know, I see Josh and the kids coming back, and Josh has got his long face. I said, oh, boy, you know, things did not go so well for him today, I could tell. <laughs> so so 
I looked at my uh, staff member and I said, uh, how did he go? He says, ah, it went okay, went okay. Uh, so after Josh and the kids went on to the cafeteria, I said, what went on, what went on with Josh? He says, oh, he's so mad. He, 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 he double faulted his entire last game of the match. Oh. <laughs> Oh. An entire game of double fault, and he he is he says he's gonna quit. And I said, I said, oh boy, that's funny. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> and, Trial and by I said, fire uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I said that's funny. So I said, uh, I said, uh, so what's next? He says, no, I already told him that after we eat um, uh, dinner, I'm gonna go back on the courts with him and work with him. Sure, sure enough, the, the this kid was out there with my son with a bucket of balls. And, and and hitting serves again, and uh, and we still laugh about that day because you know the amazing thing is two years later, you know, at Kalamazoo he beat uh, James Blake. For you to have an idea, you know how wow. quick can you can you can actually improve in those two years. By the time this kid was actually drooling to be playing in the 16s, drooling, he's still a very green player for all practical purposes because he hadn't had the miles on the courts that all of these other kids in the 16s have had since 10 and 11, 12. So he would be misfiring shots here and there. But the competitive fire inside of him was a lot brighter than all of those other kids that were burned out by the time they were 16s. Yeah. You see, they were just, they just, they just were burned out. They were just, it was another tournament. They've been playing tournaments since they were 10 years old. Now they're 15 years old. They're tired. And here comes right. a kid on the other side, hungry, drooling, not that good yet technically, but drooling to kill you, to, to win a match because he was so looking forward to being competitive on a tennis court. You know, that's what really spurts the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the level. It's that inner fire. And, and most of the kids that start early, they lose it by the time they're 15, 16. They're worn out. Ever, you know, dealing with everything they had to deal with. Sure. I had a dad tell me recently that I should consider myself a successful tennis parent if my son is still playing when he graduates from high school. He says, I don't care <laughs> what he does post-high school tennis-wise, but if he's even still playing the game at 18, exactly. you should pat yourself on the back because so yeah, many you've of these done something kids, good. They burn out. Well, I would go one step farther. Not only if he's still playing tennis, but he's still talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) That goes for all teenagers. I don't care if they play tennis or otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you know, Lisa, but you know, Lisa, so, so this is where I started, you know, this is why I'm so proud of what Josh has done it, you know, and I started on the top of the conversation when you asked about, talk about Josh, you know, and not just because of what he, what he accomplished in tennis. But because that he, that the, who he is, he has done it on his own. He's done it for himself. He's done it knowing that this was his deal. That he had nothing to prove, uh, nothing. To, he would not please me, one way or the other. In fact, my daughter, who is two years older than Josh, never played tennis. And I'm glad that she never played tennis. To be fair, she, she's a you know uh, she's a club player. She's still today. She's 38 years, seven years old, and she plays tennis just for fun. But never played tennis tournaments, and and, and I never asked for it. And uh, and and so I'm very proud of uh, Josh doing what he has done to get where he has gotten in tennis at such a young age because he's done it all for himself. And and perhaps that's the key of my. Uh, uh, my delivery right here, you know, uh, on this subject uh, is is until parents 
make uh, sure that their kid own their game, that their kids have that game as their own thing, and, and the parents should not interfere with that game. Let that kid do what he wants to do with that game. Now, now in the book, I have a section for parents, as you know, and, uh, and parents and players. And I've advised parents and players uh, 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 throughout my, my coaching career. Uh, yes, there are certain things that a parent has to do in order to discipline their youngster uh, while they're growing up in, in, in junior tennis. But those are things that violate family principles. They have nothing to do with tennis. This is, has to do with family principles. So let's assume that the kid that's 13 years old goes out to play a, a, a tournament and he goes crazy and starts breaking rackets or shouting obscenities on a tennis court or 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 cheating on a tennis court well you know we've got to understand one thing here there's nothing to do with tennis this has to do about family principles some families would not allow their child to cheat to say obscenities or to throw rackets the same manner that a parent would not allow a kid to, throw, to, to shout obscenities on a dining room table when guests are at home or without guests you know, being at home, mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. Or, or break a plate of spaghetti because the kid lost his cool while eating dinner. Or, right. you know, so those are, those are issues that are family principles that cannot be violated on court or at home or in any other place because you're trying to pass on to your children your principles as that 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 you believe in so so a parent in my opinion should and do this is where the problem is a parent a lot of parents don't go there because they think that may hurt their kids rankings or etc but you go back to the history of this game and uh, you will see that Bjorn Borg, when he was 11 years old, for your information, mom took his two rackets and put it in a, a behind lock and said, Bjorn, you will not touch these tennis rackets for a year. Because the kid shouted an obscenity on the court playing it when he was 11 years old. He stayed one year without touching his rackets. After that, his mom says, are you ready now to go back and play tennis and, ne- and not you know, ever say, you know, never do what you did a year ago? And from that point forward, I mean, you know, those of us that know Bjorn, Bjorn never opened his mouth, you know, on the tennis court, mm-hmm. you know, ever again, you know. So the line was drawn right there by his mom, was drawn right there, just clear, clear as 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 the day. Is is look, this is it. You 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 want to play tennis, you play tennis, but you go out there and violate our family principles, you're done. <laughs> you're not going to play tennis anymore. So. Right. Uh, um, I will tell you that I've defaulted Josh, you know, when he was 14, just past 14, with another tournament that he was already getting going and all that, and I went to see this tournament, and uh, it was a big match for him, and uh, and uh, and he lost his cool, uh, I remember. And I remember walking up and said, uh, okay, please shake his hands, and, uh, you know, the match is over. You know, and I took him out of the, out of the match. And that was a clear, clear uh, signal to him, this is not what tennis is. Okay, mm-hmm. because because you see, um, uh, Lisa, I, I've got a, a, through the years. I've developed a lot of uh, a lot of uh, um, uh, sayings, a lot of uh, uh, things that I get across to kids that I coach. One that is one of the most important ones is that tennis is not a personal battle. You know, a champion needs to know that. 
And kids need to know that because as an individual sport, it's so easy to turn this game into a personal battle. You know, it's like the kid out there hooked you, then the other one is showing the other one a fist, and you know, all of this personal battle, you know, that gets transformed into from a tennis match because of the the blood is 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 heated. Uh, that it has nothing to do with being a tennis player or a tennis champion. You know, a tennis champion is one that, that knows how to play the game, knows how to win by 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 understanding what it takes to win, and never making that a personal battle. And this is unfortunately a big uh, big problem in junior tennis because I agree. because the kids are yeah. out there. Yeah, the kids are out there on their own. They are so desperate to win that, uh, you know, parents are out there, you know, I mean, look, in that same orange ball that I told you that I came to the United States in, in, in 1969, believe me or not, um, Dick Stockton's father uh, ended up uh, in a fist fight with Harold Solomon's father on the sidelines, and the both of them ended up in jail. Yeah. I wow. Mean, so... So, so this goes. This is not something new. Modern tennis. This goes back to my days as well. Parents getting, you know, fights with other parents on the sidelines. I mean, total mayhem, total chaos for a kid that is fourteen, sixteen years old to be involved in. So, uh, so it's important that the kid has a line. Define, draw, drawing the line. Look, uh, you're going to play junior uh, tennis. This is your game. You do whatever you do, good or bad. It's you. It's not you know because of my money or because I invested the money because I bought you the new racket because I bought you. You know, the last thing a parent should do is to treat their child differently after a win or a loss. That is the biggest mistake parents make right there. You should have a one exact same manner after win or a loss do not change it doesn't matter if, you know if they lost or won you have to behave exactly the same otherwise you'll be sending wrong signals to kids because there's so many parents that you know when a kid wins a match you know they're ready quickly to make reservations in the best restaurant in town and you know and they're calling everybody that my kid won two and two is in the semifinals and then all of a sudden, when the kid loses, you know, they don't talk to the kid for a week. So, I mean, what kind of a signal are you sending to the kid at this point? Is he going to be a champion? No. He's, I can guarantee you that, that that kid is never going to be a champion. But that's such a hard task, and, and I've addressed that issue on the show and in my blog, you know, several times over the past couple of years. As a parent, you know, you can't help but be emotionally invested in what your child is doing out there good or bad, you know, it's and and the challenge is to maintain a, a stony face, you know, and to to maintain a calm body language and all of that. But it is hard. It's really hard. And I you know, it's a it's a skill I think that we as parents have to work on developing the same way our kids work on developing their tennis skills. Absolutely. All of them, parents and kids, are actually learning, you know, how to be in junior tennis. You're absolutely correct. But I want to, uh, uh, before the show is over, i also like to make a point right here that I think is important for parents as well. Is that okay. 
uh, and I, I, I humbly submit, uh, you know, when I am introduced, as you did, and believe me, I'm not faulting you at all, but uh, when I'm introduced around the world, you know, to speak at a conference or to whatever, to do a radio show like I'm doing with you, of course, uh, the former coach of John McEnroe. And uh, to be frank with you, I, I've humbly submitted through the years that actually I've learned how to coach from John. The other way around. It's not necessarily that I coached him. He coached me how to be a coach. And I'll give you a, 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 a summary of my relationship with Mac uh, and how that happened. I was uh, I graduated from college. I went out to play on a tour in those days, uh, you know, 1973. I don't know if people even know that there was no ATP until the end of 73. So there were no world rankings. There were no computer points until the end of 73. There were only rankings, national rankings, like Brazil had 1 through 10, and the uh, United States had 1 through 10. And for you to have an idea, when I played... Uh, uh, qualies at Wimbledon, uh, the way to get into Wimbledon in, in those days that I was playing college tennis here was that the president of my federation wrote a letter to the tournament director at Wimbledon saying that, you know, uh, the Brazilian Tennis Federation would like to endorse such and such and such and such players for Wimbledon, and I was one of those guys, and the, the tournament director would make a decision whether I would be in the main draw or in the qualies, you know, just by wow. pure subjective uh, type of a choice that was wow. you know how it was in those days so mm -hmm. so after i graduated i played uh, uh, a series of eight months of tournaments in in europe and uh, and uh, to make a long story short i just decided i was not going to continue to play and uh, and i wanted to start a family my uh, wife at that point was pregnant with uh, with uh, with jordan our daughter and uh, okay time to quit this traveling around in europe and let's just settle down and uh, and uh, where am I going to start teaching tennis to make a living so I can, I can have uh, uh, start my family? So I called Harry Hopman. Mr. Hopman was an Australian coach known as the best coach ever in tennis. For those do, that, who, who do not know about Mr. Hopman, Mr. Hopman was the coach of the Davis, Australian Davis Cup team that won 18 Davis Cups in a row in, in Australia. And Mr. Hopman, actually, I had a run-in with Mr. Hopman when I was a junior player at the National Junior Indoors. He came to talk to me and uh, so forth. So long story short, when I was finishing up my professional tennis career post-college, where am I going to go to start making a living to raise a family? I called Mr. Hopman from Denmark, as a matter of fact, to... Uh, to New York, I knew he had just uh, uh, he about a year or two before, two years before he he was the director of this junior tennis academy in New York, which I didn't even know where it was at that point, but I found out where it was, made a call, and he was the director of Port Washington Tennis Academy in Long Island. So. Uh, I asked Mr. Hoffman if I could uh, come in and work for him, and I explained to him my situation. He says, of course. I ended up coming into New York, and, uh, and, uh, and as I was actually coming in from Europe and until I got to New York, Mr. Hoffman ended up having to have hip surgery, and uh, the cold in the Northeast was too much for him, so he came to Florida. And I ended up being hired as uh, one of the pros at Paul Washington, even though Mr. Hoffman wasn't there at that point. And um, fresh out of the tour, I was playing good tennis and in shape. And so the first day 
of my coaching career, the owner of the academy put me on this first court with uh, five or six kids. One of those five or six kids was actually John McEnroe, and he was about 14 and a half years old at that point. Kind of a, wow. you know, sort of a budgy little kid, lefty, with a freezy hair, a, you know, red headband, uh, you know, just sort of little timid kid. And I walked into the court and uh, saw the, the kids warming up. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were, you know, three, four other kids on the court at that point. And, um, and this is my first lesson. What am I going to do as a coach? I've never, you know, never went to a, to a, uh, to, to, to learn how to be a coach. I, you know, I'm a player basically. So I walk in and I say, what am I going to do, you know, in this session right here with these kids? So I watch these kids warming up the overheads and I see, you know, a couple of them missed, uh, you know, some overheads and all of that. And I said, ha, ha. You know, how creative. Let's start out, you know, just with a bang right now, your first day as a coach on the court. So I said, I'll bring the kids to the net. And I said, uh, well, look, look guys, uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. And, um, you know, saw you guys warming up. You, you're hitting the ball pretty good. But I saw you missed a couple of overheads. So let's start out by talking overheads. You know, I kind of gave him my spiel about what I thought about overheads. and said, I'm going to do a drill here, you know. I'm gonna uh, uh, I'm gonna toss ten lobs for each one of you, and let's see how many of those ten overheads you guys do right. Each one of you, you know, kids are looking at me as the pro on the court, and go back out there. I push my cart back, you know, to my side, get the first kid up, and I toss ten ten lobs, and the kid made five overheads. Second kid comes in, makes five six overheads in there. Then comes Mac. Mac comes up, I send him a lob, and he goes up there, and he snaps the first one, beautiful overhead. I push him out wide to the other side of the court with a second one. He goes out there and just nails the second overhead. When I toss my third lob, he starts going up for the overhead, and all of a sudden he holds his hamstring like uh, I pulled my hamstring and lifts his arm up and starts walking to the sidelines into the uh, bench, like sitting down. Don't want to go on for the rest of the, the, ten, the ten lobs. I knew he was a, a total fake. So I called him up to the net and said, wait, wait, wait a minute now. What happened here? What are you doing? I mean, you know, we still got seven to go here. He said, no, 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 my leg. My leg. I said, no, 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 your leg's not hurting. Okay, so why, why don't you want to do this drill? So he looks at me timidly like this, a 14 years old, for, you know, to a guy that is like, well, I was 24, 23 at that point, you know. And he looked at me and he, and he goes, um when do you hit more than two overheads in a point in a match? <laughs> so, I mean, that hit me like a ton of bricks, okay? Right. That hit me like a ton of bricks. I, 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 said, I, I looked at this kid, and I am thinking, oh, my God, uh, you know. So I, I, go, I go to the other kids. Everybody here? No more of this drill. Makes absolutely no sense what I'm doing. <laughs> Mac told me that makes absolutely no sense, and he's completely right. So from that day, Lisa, my philosophy of coaching was based on that very day that everything that we did uh, drill-wise had to simulate points of a match. Otherwise, there's no reason to practice. See, Mac mm -hmm. never hit 300 forehands cross-court. Because, you know, just like he told me, when do you hit more than two overheads in a point in a match? I ask right. you, when do you hit 300 forehands nonstop, you know, in a, in, right. in a, in a match? You, you don't. 
Then you take it to the next level and you, and you go, okay, you know, you can hit that forehand 300 times, that same forehand. And you know what? Tomorrow when you're playing a match and it's 3-4, 30, 40, you're going to miss the exact same forehand because you did not <laughs> practice right. that forehand that was at 3-4, 30, 40. You practiced right. a forehand. But which forehand did you practice? You see what I'm saying? So yeah, from that absolutely. point forward, Yeah, from, from that point forward, everything that was done was done simulating match conditions. And the kids were, were, were competing in a court against each other. So from that point forward, you know, our sessions were, I mean, competitive. Everybody was into it because everybody was doing the things that, uh, that they know that they needed when they came to a match. And I'm going to close this, 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 this episode about how to practice by telling you that the way that a, a kid should be practicing serves before a match is not like the majority of the kids still today do. They go out to the tennis club, they pick up a basket of balls, and they go out there and start banging serve, 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 so they can get the serve ready for tomorrow's match. So then I go in and I said, what are you doing? I'm practicing my serve. And I'm saying, which serve? And he goes, uh, my first. And I'm going, which first? Because, you know, the first at 30 love is completely different than the first at love 30. And the first at yeah. 30 all is completely different than the first at 45. So, I mean, which first are you practicing? So, so the way to practice serves to be effective in a match is what I did back then in Port Washington. I did then with my own son. I did then with, uh, you know, John and Patrick. Patrick, you know, through the years that I coached Patrick uh, uh, on the tour. I mean, before big matches, uh, we used to go on the tennis court, and, 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 and this drill was always done uh, before a match. You play six games against himself. So you pick a target. And you go out there like a target of that box, and, 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 and you, you come up and you serve your first point, zero zero, just like you would start a, a game with your serve. You certainly don't want to go and, and put your pedal to the metal on a, on a point, zero zero point. You want to start with a three-quarter first serve because you don't want to start the game showing your second serve to an opponent that immediately gets aggressive against your second serve in the first point. So you got to get that first serve three-quarters pace and make sure that he's in to guarantee your 15 love. Then you step on the gas a little more. So you learn how to serve through the whole game according to the pressures and according to the score. By, by practicing serve that way, you, you put your first serve in at the right speed, but not at the target that you had chosen. That means that you missed the first serve, so you've got to throw that second in there. If the second goes in at the right target, the way you want it, it's 15 love. Otherwise, it's love 15, and, and so on and so on. Because this way, you're practicing the serves exactly with the same simulated pressures of the scores that you're going to need to, to feel comfortable to serve that serve during a match if you follow me. Absolutely. That's so smart. That's the first time I've ever heard that. Well, that's, that's what makes, you know, what player have confidence on serving a second serve at 1530 sure. is, is if you've already gone through that situation, you know, in practice, you know, and, and freshly in your mind that you can actually, you can actually hit that second serve at 530 because you just mm -hmm. had a couple of games, you know, yesterday that you did that serve, you know, so it's nicely fresh in your mind that you can handle it. I love that. Well, we are out of time, unfortunately, and I 
I don't know about you, but I would certainly love to have you come back on again and continue this conversation because I have learned an incredible amount from you today, Carlos, and I'm just so grateful to you for taking time out. I know you're a busy, busy guy and, and sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. And, and um, I, I want to just urge my readers, uh, a link to your book is available on parentingaces.com on our, our books page. And um, I hope everyone will take a look. The book was just re-released as an, in an e-version. So it's very simple, load it onto your Kindle or your iPad and, and take a look and learn even more from Carlos and his massive amounts of wisdom. Carlos, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your Monday. And again, thank you so, so much for being with us today. Lisa, it was my pleasure to be here with you. And uh, and as you can see, as you can tell, uh, uh, talking one hour only about junior tennis for me is it, just a really, uh, I'm getting warmed up. So yes, let's do another session another time. Okay. And you, and you stay safe on the road. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. To the rest of my listeners, have a great week. The uh, link to the podcast for today's show will be online as soon as I get back to Atlanta, which will be about four hours from now. So uh, check it out, and you'll be able to share it with your junior tennis friends. And, again, thank you to Carlos. I look forward to speaking to the rest of you next week. Have a great one, everybody. Signing off. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, visit us online at ParentingAces.com. As always, a huge thank you to our sponsor, TennisBalls.com.